0: This podcast was recorded in the autumn of 2023, live in a classroom at Yale University. Class 6, Nietzsche and the Death of God. Thank you all for coming in the rain. I know it's always extra hard to get out when it's raining. (laughs) But today we're going to talk about Nietzsche, which is fun. Um... I realize that this class is called European Intellectual History Since Nietzsche and we're already kind of into the third week, maybe even the fourth week, no, the third week, and we're finally getting to Nietzsche, but see, finally we are getting to Nietzsche. Um, we're finally today going to kill off God. I know you've all been waiting for this. Um, Nietzsche is one of the most fun thinkers to talk about. It's also, he's also in some ways one of the most difficult. And he's one of the most difficult for reasons that are very different from the reasons why Hegel is so difficult. Um, Nietzsche is seemingly, for instance, much easier to read than somebody like Hegel. His language is a much more human language. It's a much more humanly expressive language. It's a much less technical language. It's very pithy. It's very aphoristic. It's very colorful. Um, you can read Nietzsche on a hammock, you can't really read Hegel on a hammock. I mean, you can, but Hegel isn't really a hammock kind of reading. But Nietzsche, you can. The difficulty comes in that, as difficult as Hegel is, there is a kind of consensus in the end about what were the key things he was trying to communicate. There is much less consensus with Nietzsche. People have wildly different interpretations of what Nietzsche meant by some of his key concepts. You know, and so in this course, I kind of try my best you know, to restrain myself from going off in my own kind of quirky pet directions about my own interpretations or things I like better here or there. I try to give you something that kind of hits straight down the center so that you have a general arc of where these conversations went. Nietzsche is hard because the interpretations are all over the place. So I'm going to try. What he says can be open to radically different readings. You know. And the classic example of this is God is dead. Um, it's a very short sentence. It's a very clear sentence. Um, none of the words really require explanation. Very easy syntax, very straightforward. But what does he really mean by God is dead? I mean, we've now had some, you know, close to a century and a half of interpretation about what Nietzsche meant when he declared God dead. Should we interpret it literally, ironically? Is it an allegory? Is it a provocation? Um, I'm going to kind of take you through an arc of his thinking and we will end back up with the death of God and I will try to give you a sense of how I think the most productive reading of that is you know, keeping in mind that there are many possibilities. Um, I also want to situate him kind of in our timeline as a post-romantic proto-existentialist thinker. You know, there are kind of schools of thought that put Nietzsche in the category of a kind of late German romantic. There are schools of thought that put him in the category of one of the early existentialists. I think both of those things work I think it's helpful to see him in some way as kind of late for romanticism and precocious for existentialism, which will, of course, make more sense once we get to existentialism, so just make a mental note of that. He's a writer who jumps a lot from topic to topic. His writing is very vivid, very literary, very expressive. It's not necessarily super well organized. You know, it's not the kind of, you know, Hegel, one paragraph, consciousness goes through stage one, stage two, stage three. It's a little bit all over the place. Um, Very, very aphoristic. So again, you've got these very concise, pithy statements. He's very, very quotable. You have a lot of quotes that come from Nietzsche, where he just kind of says something and throws it out there. He hasn't proven it. You know, in any kind of scientific way. There's not that aspiration even that Hegel has for philosophy to be a science. He just has an idea and he kind of throws it out there. Um, actually, while I'm, I'm talking about aphorisms, let me teach you one of my favorite Polish aphorisms from uh, writer-philosopher um, Stanislaw Jerzy Letts from the early 20th century, which is so great and we don't have it in English. Um, what I found... I found myself at the very bottom, and then I heard knocking from below. You never know when you might need that at a cocktail party. So, <laughs> I found myself at the very bottom, and then, I heard <laughs> and then I heard knocking from below. In Russian, the Polish phrase is just abbreviated to knocking from below, and everyone knows what you mean. Okay, anyway, it's a very kind of Nietzschean type of thing. Um, another way I want to give you to situate Nietzsche, and maybe today this will be kind of my through line, is he's kind of an an alter ego of Hegel in a certain way. He's a kind of anti-Hegel. He is in rebellion against Hegel, he hates Hegel, but there are also elements that are profoundly parallel, you know, and, and consonant with what Hegel says. So I'm going to try to kind of take you through that as well. He's the kind of anti-Hegel who sees the way Hegel sees all of the antagonisms, the violence, the contradictions, you know, the conflict. But Nietzsche adamantly refuses any kind of Hebel. There's no reconciliation. Not, at, not now, not at the end, not somewhere in between, not off to the side, just no reconciliation. No telos, no reconciliation. But a lot of those same dialectical tensions keep coming up. We just don't get the directionality and we don't get the, the alphabon. Um, another way I, I want to give you to think about him, and this may or may not be a little bit unfair, but it's so I think it's so deep in him. There's this very sadomasochistic element to Nietzsche. And, like, Sadism and masochism are really in equal parts. There's, there's a lot about not just antagonism and conflict, but really about pain. Much more so than in Hegel. Hegel, you get a lot of violence, you get a lot of antagonism, but less of a conversation about pain. Nietzsche, you really get a conversation about pain, and a lot about pleasure and pain. Not necessarily sexualized. You know, a lot of it kind of metaphysical. But still, the kind of sadistic, masochistic elements there. Um, A lot of disgust. There's a very strong element of disgust and contempt. The sense of how can our lives possibly be made bearable once we understand just how despicable our condition is which, you know, one always has moments in life of relating to this intensely. <laughs> you know, how can it be made variable once we've actually faced what it is? How awful life really is, this dreadfulness of existence. Is there any way it can possibly be overcome? Um, I'll read you a quote from his very early work, The Birth of Tragedy. Miserable, ephemeral race, children of hazard and hardship, Why do you force me to say what it would be more fruitful for you not to hear? The best of all things is something entirely outside your grasp. Not to be born. Not to be. To be nothing. But the second best is for you to die soon. For those of you who go on to read Emil Choran, you'll see immediately that somebody, the Romanian philosopher who read a lot of Nietzsche at a very impressionable age. Um, he's one of the thinkers, um, like Freud, you know, and Freud was a huge admirer of his, who is much better at telling us what's wrong than in giving us any solutions. Remember, I mentioned that one way to kind of categorize different thinkers, and there are many ways we can categorize all of these thinkers, is by thinkers who put systems together and thinkers who take everything apart. Hegel puts things together, Nietzsche takes everything apart. In this sense, he's also a forerunner of deconstruction which we'll get to at the end. He's not giving you any way things go together. There's no solution, there's no telos, there's no alphabon, you never get to that point. But in a very visceral you know, and vivid and colorful way and very creative way, he's going to take things apart. Okay, um, so Nietzsche was born in 1844. Um, in the Prussian province of Saxony. His father, who was a Lutheran minister, died when he was very young. He was subsequently raised by five women. I think a paternal grandmother, a mother, a sister, and two aunts. I mention this because he has issues with women his whole life. Now, whether you want to read that into his fatherless biography, you know, and five strong women who raised him, that's up to you. But I, I mention this as a biographical point that often comes up when people discuss his biography. Um, he goes to a boarding school on a scholarship. It's the same fancy boarding school that Novalis, Fichte and the Schlegel brothers went to, all of those great German, um, German romantics. And then when he's 20 in 1864, he starts at the University of Bonn. He's initially interested in studying theology which again is significant because we're going to start off studying God and then we're going to get around to God's death. Um, But his attention then turns to philology, to literature, and he also has a very strong interest in music, which is significant. A very deep attachment to music. And When you read Nietzsche... Um, think about that, because his writing is often very musical, and I'm going to spend now a few minutes also talking to you about this Wagner period. Um, I should first of all admit that like I am not a music person. I can't even read music. I was, I was totally unable to learn to play the piano. Um, I have no talent whatsoever, but I am the sister of a musical genius. My brother's an opera composer, um, so I have this contiguity with the world of music. So for those of you who do understand music, there's, I think you'll see a lot in Nietzsche. Um, In 1869, when he's only 24, he's offered a professorship of classical philology, classical language and literature at the University of Basel in Switzerland, even though he hasn't even completed his doctorate. He was one of these precocious wunderkind genius types. Um, And then in 1870, and I won't go into this in detail, but um, Otto von Bismarck, who is one of the political leaders of the Prussian, the Prussian state at that time kind of provokes a war with France as a means of unifying various um, disparate and only loosely unified German states into a German empire. That war, the Franco-German war, Franco-Prussian war, goes from 1870 to 1871. Bismarck wins. 1871, you have the Declaration of the German Empire. Um, This is significant because this Franco-Prussian war is, is when Nietzsche actually volunteers to leave Basel and work as a medical orderly. Um, this was not a good decision for him for various reasons. Um, he clearly doesn't seem like the right type if you read back into his biography. But also, he returns in terrible health. And he's very weak when he returns to the university in 1871 and never really recovers. Okay, but it's right really before that war gets started, and I don't know how this affected or didn't affect his decision to volunteer, but in 1869, he develops as a very young person a very close friendship with with Richard Wagner, the German composer, who is quite a character. Um, And he develops this very close friendship with Wagner, who is much older, um, and Wagner's wife at the time, Cosima, um, with whom Nietzsche might also have been in love. Um, Cosima had been the wife of Wagner's conductor, but he kind of took her from him. This seems to be a habit that Wagner had, um, more generally stealing other people's wives or seducing them or somehow inducing them to do things that are probably self-destructive for their life in general. Um, what, there's a phrase called Wagnerology, and Wagner was one of these thinkers, he's an opera composer, but he was more than an opera composer, he had a kind of cult around him. He fundamentally changed music. He changed the relationship between German-ness and music. You know, and he made opera into a cult-like thing. Um, Nietzsche's love for Wagner, this passionate love for Wagner, this obsession with with loving Wagner was apparently a thing in the late 19th century, like not just for Nietzsche, but more generally, to put that in context. Um, Wagner was arguably the most important artistic thinker of the second half of the 19th century, certainly the most important in the world of music. He was also a vicious anti-Semite. He was pathologically arrogant um, and egotistical and megalomaniac. Um, My my brother, the opera composer, who is also a professor of music, said to me once, he said, anything bad you read about him is true. he is one of those, you know, genius lunatics who play major historical roles. Um, And one thing he decides to do is take opera and kind of break away from a French and Italian style and create a uniquely German opera that is based on pathos and grandiosity and heaviness. He turns to medieval myths. Um, He searches for old legends. Um, He wants opera to be full of philosophical import. Um, Apparently his operas are extremely taxing for the singers. You know, again, I don't sing, so I can't speak to this personally, but his opera, Tristan and Isolde, that was extremely important artistic event, um, made demands for a high tenor with a very powerful voice. In fact, that no composer had ever made such demands on the voice before. Um, And it seems that the, the star who played Tristan Um, died very shortly after the first performances (laughs) because it was actually that physically taxing. Um, In any case, Wagner also involved, and this is key to Nietzsche's first book, um, a kind of idea of opera and music that went back to ancient Greek ideas about drama, music, story, song, catharsis. Um, And you'll see as we move forward that in general, in this period, and not only in this period, there's a kind of preoccupation that these German thinkers and figures have with ancient Greece, with kind of taking a tradition from ancient Greece and drawing a line of continuity um, to modern Germany, in particular to 19th and then later 20th century Germany. Um, You you probably noticed, or I at least mentioned to you when we read Hegel, that for Hegel, world history was ancient Greece, brief, not terribly significant epilogue in ancient Rome, fast forward French Revolution, and then you're in German philosophy. So Wagner's also, he's going back to this idea of ancient Greek drama, um, which is going to then be the subject of of Nietzsche's book, The The Birth of Tragedy. Um, In any case, what Nietzsche is, is passionately, you know, he buys into this whole thing with Wagner. And my brother says the deal with the whole Wagner thing is you've got to buy into the whole thing. You've got to take it as a whole package. He has, Wagner's created a cult not only of himself but of opera. He takes the opera house and makes it into like a temple that you go in with reverence. Before that, it was a kind of place where like you went in and sat in a box and then kind of gossiped and chatted and maybe had a drink. If you want to commune with this period, you can read Alma Werfel's memoirs or her diary, which is fantastic. Um, But now you go in with reverence, and you're silent, you know, and the opera can last an extremely long time. His opera, The Ring, takes 18 hours. It's done usually over four nights. It's supposed to be a kind of cult-like experience. He walks around. He declares himself a god. He talks people into giving him lots of money. He changes the way that music and poetry interact with each other. He's introducing an idea of theme music. The orchestra's taking over more of the burden of storytelling. So it's not only the words, but it's also, it's also the melody. It's the notes. It's the tone. Um, And Nietzsche's first book, The Birth of Tragedy, which is then published shortly after this war ends in 1872, is very much a product of this moment. It is dedicated to Wagner, whose musical dramas Nietzsche presents as heirs to the great Greek tragedies, the continuation of the Greek tradition. And what was so important about the Greek tradition was it made made men into artists of life. This is about the relationship between art and life, and the sense that art is the supreme task, Nietzsche says, the only truly metaphysical activity of this life, and only, Nietzsche argues there, as an aesthetic phenomenon can the world be justified. Otherwise, we're just despicable. It's only this kind of great grandiose art that could possibly justify the human condition. And so like the romantics, Nietzsche wanted life to be art. It was only creation that could justify life in that sense. Um, Now, as you might kind of have a foreboding of, um, Nietzsche later breaks with Wagner completely. And the intensity of the obsession and the intensity of the break suggests something a bit like a kind of homoerotic relationship gone wrong because he was so passionately a Wagnerite and then so passionately anti-Wagner and felt that Wagner had somehow sold out to materialism at a certain point. He was, there was also some jealousy of Wagner's fame, of his strength, of his wife. Um, in any case, Nietzsche retreats... Um, He is at Basel until 1879, when he retires scandalously young, ostensibly for health reasons, and he was in very weak health. Um, the entire rest of his life after he came back from the war. He suffered from severe migraines, among other things. Um, He spent much of the rest of his life in sanatoria. Um, He lived by himself, generally in cold rooms. I don't know why the rooms were always cold, but they're always described that way. He, you know, has to stay away from alcohol, caffeine, spicy food. He can't smoke. He doesn't eat very much. Um, He has very few belongings. He doesn't even seem to have a cat or a dog, which is very sad. Um, I don't know why he didn't have a cat or a dog, because sometimes you get these great thinkers who otherwise have miserably lonely lives, but then you find out at least there was a cat, But apparently, Nietzsche was just by himself in this cold room. It's very it's very depressing. Um, there is this episode in eighteen eighty two where this woman named Lou Salome, who was about 21 at the time, she was from St. Petersburg, and one of these intelligentsia figures who knew a whole bunch of language and traveled all over the place, and everybody fell in love with her. Um, She is going to become a very important theorist of psychoanalysis later. Um, But she's very young, um, in 1882, and she was close to this philosopher named Paul Ray, who is a friend of Nietzsche. Um, and Ray proposed marriage to her, but she said no. And I'm not sure whether or not Nietzsche knew this, but Nietzsche falls in love with her too. And he proposes to her through his friend Paul Ray, which seems like a bad idea for over-determined reasons. Like, you know, one, like, you know, she was probably closer to Paul than she was to him. And two, like, if you're really going to make a marriage proposal, shouldn't you you know, make it yourself? Otherwise, it seems a little cowardly. Um, In any case, um, he's rejected, and he is completely, completely crushed. Um, And in uh, Christmas of 1882, he writes to a friend about this rejection and says, I am exerting every ounce of my self-mastery. But I have lived in solitude for so long and fed too long off my own fat so that I am now being broken as no other man could be on the wheel of my own passions. Unless I discover the alchemy trick of turning this muck into gold, I am lost. Um, what survives is a very famous photograph, which you can look up after class on the internet, um, of Nietzsche and Ray drawing an ox cart while Lou Salome stands in it brandishing a whip over it. Um, there, there's a, a line then in Nietzsche's book, Thus Spake Zarathustra, which I'll talk about in a moment, um, that says, thou goest to woman, Do not forget thy whip, Um, which harkens back to this photograph in which, of course, it's the woman who is holding the whip over the two men. Um, The British analytical philosopher Bertrand Russell later said about this very sarcastically, and it makes me a little bit sad to read this, but I'm going to read it to you anyway because there's clearly something in it. Bertrand Russell said of Nietzsche, Nietzsche's opinion of women, like every man's, is an objectification of his own emotion towards them, which is obviously one of fear. Fear not thy whip, but nine women out of ten would get the whip away from him, and he knew it. Um, Okay, I'm feeling badly for having embarrassed Nietzsche here. um, Although he's he's long dead. Um, Let me take you through... Let me take you through some of like, the key moments in his thought, at least the moments that I think are most productive and will come back the most often. Again, he's a very fragmentary and consistent writer. Um, he does not invite holistic interpretation. He's also a very psychological thinker. He's not cold and technical. He's deeply psychological. Um, he's obsessed with the trauma of the present age, with modernity, with alienation. Everybody is obsessed with alienation. Um, he criticized the romantics a lot, but in fact, there's a, a kind of strong romantic element in his, his constant turning to passion, to will. Will is much more important than thought. His insistence on the positive function of instinct and ecstasy, his skepticism towards rationalism, you see a lot that's kind of carried over from the, the romantics. Um, A major theme in Nietzsche, which is something that is very reflective of Hegel as well, is this idea of contradiction, antagonism, things containing within themselves their own oppositions, their own underminings. I wanna, I'm going to jump around and talk about a few different texts here. The first one I want to mention just briefly is one of my favorites, although not necessarily one of the ones that's been most influential, which is an 1874 essay called The Uses and Disadvantages um, of History for Life. When a couple years ago I curated a forum on historical comparisons, I stole that title and called it The Uses and Disadvantages of Historical Comparisons for Life, Um, about the fascism debate. Um, In any case, The Uses and Disadvantages of History for Life essentially makes an argument that too much history can make us sick. It's overwhelming. It's too much. It's nauseating. Only the strong can handle a lot of history. And he begins with this scene of cows. And the cows are kind of luxuriating in their cowness, in their presentism. They're just kind of chilling out. You know, they're kind of like hanging out, munching on the grass, strolling around the fields. You know, and Nietzsche says, we can only envy them. When are we ever that content? We're never that content. What makes them that content, Nietzsche says? Well, they're content because they're not thinking about the past. They're not thinking about history. They have no sense of history. They just live in the present. They just stroll around and munch their grass. You know, and man, on the other hand, is so constantly aware of the past, intimidated by the past, grappling with the past, feeling you know, insignificant in comparison to great figures of the past, you know, that this awareness only serves to remind man, Nietzsche writes, what his existence fundamentally is, an imperfect tense that can never become a perfect one. Um, only this kind of this consciousness of the past made us sick. Nietzsche says making us sick is a big theme of his. There's a lot of nausea that keeps coming up in his writing. Only the strong can handle a lot of history. You have to have what he calls a lot of plastic power. Um, so I'm, I'm now going to tell a little story about my, my son during the pandemic three years ago. We were in Austria um, and at the beginning of the school year, his fifth grade class took this getting-to-know-you field trip, you know, out to the woods on the outskirts of Vienna where there are a whole bunch of wild pigs. It's a in, in in German. Um, and Caleb, my son, was completely captivated by the wild pigs. He just somehow totally identified with the wild pigs. And he came home and then he like, he went off on a whole like beautiful lecture about why it was preferable to be a wild pig, you know, as opposed to a human. I mean, If you were a wild pig, you could be soft and furry and cuddly. You could stick your face in the, your food and just like eat it like that and nobody... Criticized you about your table manners or the fact that you weren't holding the fork correctly. Yeah, um, sticking your face in your food is perfectly fine if you're a wild pig. You don't have to worry about coronavirus because you're a wild pig. You don't have to worry about Donald Trump because you're a wild pig. I mean, there's just this infinite list of reasons it was preferable to be a wild pig. And I thought, yes, this is basically the mood with which Nietzsche begins that essay. Look at those cows. Think of all the reasons why it's nicer to be a cow, all the things that the cow is not worried about by just living in the present. Okay Um, Nietzsche also in that essay about how history can make us sick uses it to launch a critique of Hegel and I'm going to read you this passage with his critique of Hegel in this same text the uses and disadvantages of historical comparisons and Nietzsche there says I believe there has been no more dangerous vacillation or crisis of German culture this century that has not been rendered more dangerous by the enormous and still continuing influence of this philosophy, the Hegelian. The belief that one is a latecomer of the ages is, in any case, paralyzing and depressing. But it must appear dreadful and devastating when such a belief one day by a bold inversion raises this latecomer to godhood as the true meaning and goal of all previous events, when his miserable condition is equated with a completion of world history. Such a point of view has accustomed the Germans to talk of a world process and to justify their own age as the necessary result of this world process. Such a point of view have set, has set history insofar as history is, quote-unquote, the concept that realizes itself, this is Hegel, the dialectics of the spirit of the peoples and the world tribunal in place of other spiritual powers, art and religion, as the sole sovereign power. You know, so Hegel has made history into a god, and in fact, history is what makes us sick. Okay, And yet, despite all this passionate anti-Hegelianism, there is something very dialectical about about Nietzsche's own thinking. And you can see this in a lot of his aphorisms and genealogy of of morals. He says, all great things bring about their own destruction through an act of self-overcoming. Um, In Beyond Good and Evil he writes, for all the value that the true, the truthful, the selfless may deserve, it would still be possible that a higher and more fundamental value for life might have to be ascribed to deception, selfishness, and lust see some Dostoevsky elements here. It might even be possible that what constitutes the value of these good and revered things is precisely that they are insidiously related to, tied to, and involved with the wicked. Seemingly opposite things, maybe even one with them in their essence. So this coming together Of of the good and the wicked, of the true and the false, that Hegel is always doing. Nietzsche has that same thing. It's a different mode, it's a different sensibility, it's a different tone, but that theme is still there. This constant, you know, constant merging of affirmation and revulsion, of disgust and passion, of pleasure and pain, of the pleasure of pain, that comes up again and again. Um, In The Gay Science, he writes, But if one endured, if one could endure this immense sum of grief of all kinds, if one could finally contain all this in one soul and crowded into a single feeling, this would surely have to result in a happiness that humanity has not known so far. And then Thus Spake Zarathustra, he says, have you ever said yes to a single joy? Oh, my brothers! Then you said yes too to all woe. All things are entangled, ensnared, enamored. So this is this contradiction and antagonism is something aesthetic for Nietzsche, but it's also something moral. And his critique of morality is very different from. Hegel's critique of Kant or Kant's idea of of free will. He's an ardent critic of Western tradition with its beliefs in truth, morality, God, democracy, that the virtuous man is a happy man. He doesn't buy any of that. He insists that pain is not exclusively negative, um, that suffering is not only to be endured but also to be embraced. There's going to be a very strong kinship with Dostoevsky here. One of his most famous lines um, from Zarathustra is, Oh, my brothers, am I cruel, but I say, what is falling we should still push. This what is falling we should still push is a kind of classic Nietzschean line. Everything he writes today falls and decays. Who would check it? But I, I even want to push it. Um, He tries to force us to question the categories in which we live our lives, to think differently, to feel differently. He says, we don't know what good is. We don't know. Um, What is good and evil, no one knows yet, unless it be he who creates. And again, back to this, only as an, uh, an act of artistic creation, only as an aesthetic phenomenon is the world justified. He's constantly talking about getting beyond good and evil pushing us to a place beyond good and evil when we have to rethink again what they mean. He detests pity. He detests compassion. He has a thing about great men and heroes, but also feels kind of humiliated by them. This is a big theme of his history essay. Um, He has a... He likes to kind... He's deeply attracted to the very strong figures, Uh, but he also feels like they take us to a place where we can't possibly know what is good and what is evil, and he detests weakness, and you see a lot of self-hatred there, because he's very physical, weak his his whole adult life, and he just can't stand weakness. I mean, he he detests women, he associates women with weakness, Um, he detests at a certain point Christianity because of what he calls its slave morality, and this is like kind of something he keeps coming back to again and again, this idea of the meek shall inherit the earth, he finds that reprehensible, disgusting, this turning weakness into a virtue, he can't stand it, even though, again, he himself is weak. This idea that you know, slaves understand their masters as arrogant, aggressive, proud, and bad, and therefore slaves conceive of themselves as pure and virtuous, as good, and so you justify your own oppression by claiming that then you're going to get your reward in the kingdom to come. He can't stand it. It's just a way in which people are manipulated. His Christianity is slave morality. He, he calls it a nihilistic religion and it's egalitarianism. The weak shall inherit the earth is the ethic of a slave, resentful of the master that just valorizes weaknesses and turns being a slave into a virtue. Um, and he sees this problem in democracy as well. He considers democracy the rule by mediocrity, which runs counter to the need for vitality and heroism. Um His most heroic figure is arguably Zarathustra, and thus spake Zarathustra. It's unclear exactly who Zarathustra is in, in this book. He's, he's a kind of I mean, he, he's based vaguely on the Persian founder of Zoroastrianism. He kind of functions as Nietzsche's alter ego. He's a little bit of a prophet. He's constantly like coming down off mountains to speak to people. Um, he's not invulnerable. He can be hurt. I mean, so he's not like a superhero exactly. Um, He talks to disciples, he he lives in a cave, he alternately like stands on a mountain and like comes down and retreats into solitude. Um, Every passage ends, you know, thus spake Zarathustra, thus sang Zarathustra. So it's a very melodic book. Um, Zarathustra has come to deliver a new doctrine the new doctrine is the imperative to aspire to greatness and this is where the Nietzschean idea of the Ubermensch comes from. Ubermensch is one of these untranslatable words it is sometimes from uber which is like over um, or extra in this case Um, and mensch the Ubermensch which is just a person and the ubermensch is a kind of like super person. Sometimes it's translated as overman. None of those translations really work. It's usually just ubermensch. And the ubermensch is like, it's kind of like an Alf of, of a human being. Um, and so this. this that will overcome all of mediocrity. So Zarathustra comes out of his cave, comes down to man, you know, to say that the coming, there's going to be a coming of this ubermensch. Um, Among Zarathustra's refrains is, man is something that must be overcome. Now Zarathustra himself is not actually an ubermensch. We never actually meet an ubermensch, so it's a little bit kind of imaginary. But he speaks about man as a rope tied between beast and the ubermensch. You know, a rope over an abyss. And man must act as a bridge for the coming of of the ubermensch. Um, So there's a kind of self-criticism aspect as well, this overcoming. You're constantly overcoming. Um, I teach you the ubermensch, Zarathustra says. Man is something that shall be overcome. What have you done to overcome him? What is ape to man, Zarathustra asks men? A laughing stock or a painful embarrassment. And man shall be just that for the ubermensch. Um, Man is a rope tied between the beast and the ubermensch, a rope over an abyss. A dangerous across, a dangerous on the way, a dangerous looking back, a dangerous shuddering and stopping. But eventually, there's a sense of maybe they'll be the Ubermensch. Um, so you see this, this need for greatness. OK is not enough. You know, and like Hegel, there's a kind of edginess. Content is not is impossible. You know This aspiration for great creation, um, self-creation. Um, another concept I want to throw out before we get to the death of God is something that is alternately translated as eternity, eternal recurrence, eternal return. Um, and there's basically no agreement about what Nietzsche means by this concept. Um, sometimes you see, like in the Zarathustra book, that eternity is a woman from whom Zarathustra wants children, um, this kind of lust for eternity. Um, There's a Kantian interpretation of Nietzsche's idea of eternity, which is that you should live each moment as if it were eternally recurring, which goes back to Kant's categorical imperative, which is you should always act in such a way that if the maxim of your action were to be made into a universal law, it would be a good thing. You should always ask yourself what would happen if everybody acted according to the principle I'm now acting, and if that would be good, then it's a good thing. If that would be a disaster, then you're probably making some special exception for yourself and it's not a moral act. Um, So there's the Kantian interpretation of eternity, which is that you should live each moment as if it were eternally recurring. You should always act in such a way that you wish it to repeat yourself. There's also an interpretation that says, every moment is integral to the whole. No moment is more important than the present. Um, It's only really the Ubermensch who has the strength to embrace eternal recurrence. There is another interpretation that is close to Bergson, who we'll talk about on Wednesday, that essentially says, time is like a river. It's constantly flowing. There, There are no breaks that eternity is a dimension of time, the core of time, the continuity of the time. It's not the same as infinity. There's a distinction between eternity and infinity. Um, Okay, I want to use the last uh, seven minutes here though and talk to you about the death of God. Um, So in Die die Freudige Wissenschaft, the gay science, um, which is really like the cheerful science, And Wissenschaft, again, in that German sense of science, which is kind of science as more than just the hard sciences. So in the gay science, 1882, the madman comes to deliver the news. The madman who shows up, who is always either too early or too late, who is never on time. The madman comes and delivers this news. Delivering news is also a big Nietzsche motif, like Zarathustra comes down out of the cave and he delivers news. The madman comes to deliver the news and the madman comes and says, God is dead, God remains dead, and we have killed him. How shall we, the murderers of all murderers, comfort ourselves? So the interesting thing here is that the claim is not there is no God. This is not atheism. The claim is that something has happened. We are, mo- we are crossing a border. We are moving from a situation in which God lived to a situation in which God, uh, God is dead. Moreover, we have killed him. So something has happened. God was alive. God is dead. What happened? Yeah. God is alive. When God is in some way organizing and structuring human society, when he's giving a, a sense, a meaning, a purpose to our activities, when there's some kind of whole, some kind of goal, some kind of sense of, of meaning to it all. So the death of God here, you know, Arguably, does not refer to the life or death of any specific being, physical or metaphysical, and it doesn't even necessarily refer to the particular beliefs of a particular religion. It's not about the existence or non-existence of some kind of otherworldly creature. God is a belief in an order. Um, sooner or later, for Nietzsche, we all must reach the conclusion that that ideal world which everything has a meaning and a purpose and goes together and has a goal, none of those exist. When we reach that understanding, God has died. Um, The world where contradictions are resolved and everything comes together in a harmonious way, that Hegel's telos of history, that will never be. It's not coming, it's gone. We search for totality, we search for a higher purpose, But it can't be found. We search for unity, but life is not unity. Life is all differentiation and heterogeneity. It does not come together. The result is a crisis, a crisis called nihilism, which is just another term for God is dead. Nihilism is when the highest values lose their value, when the fundamental principles organizing our reality cease to organize our reality when we understand that this ideal world is never coming together. Um, This crisis cannot be resolved by an attempt to go back and institute a new God or an ersatz God because the roots of the crisis lie in the attempt to do that in the first place. And any such attempt is bound to fail. There is no ordering principle. God is dead refers to human life disordered, and there is no real solution to it. And in some sense, it doesn't matter to Nietzsche whether or not there actually is a God. It matters whether or not we believe there is a God and we organize our lives accordingly, whether God functions as an ordering principle or whether we face with eyes wide open the differentiation and fragmentation and alienation that is the human condition. Okay, so Nietzsche, following his retirement, was extremely prolific. Um, He lived mostly in isolation. In 1889, he started signing his letters, Dionysus and the Crucified. Um, He sent a letter to his friend that year saying, Dear Professor, um, in the end, I would much rather be a Basel professor than God, but I have not dared push my private egoism so far as to desist for its sake from the creation of the world. That year he collapses on the streets in Turin in Italy. He has to be carried home. Um, he's put in an asylum in, in Jena, where all the romantic philosophers hung out. Um, essentially, he goes mad. And there are various theories and interpretations of why this happened. Some people said it was syphilis that he got during the war. Some people said it was a result of his work as a medical orderly. Some people said he got syphilis in a brothel. Some people say it was something else. Um, In any case, he never really kind of comes back to to sanity. He dies 10 years later in 1900. Um, Okay, let me just say a couple things in the two minutes I have left. He was a certain kind of draconian elitist, but he was not a German nationalist in a kind of, in a political sense that we understand it. Um, Strong romantic influence will passion vitality obsessed with living dangerously, a tortured mind who considered life more agony than pleasure, an authentic sadomasochist, opposed to all systems, saw them as as, as futile, Um, uh, struggles against all ordering principles. At the same time, he's mourning them, you know? And so you see there's a lot of mourning the death of God. You know, no compensation is to be made for the loss, but you're still mourning. Um, there's no way out. He doesn't offer any solution to the way out. Um, Freud later says about Nietzsche that he had a more penetrating knowledge of himself than any man who ever lived or was ever likely to live. Um, He was very fond of playing with the concepts of good and evil, of inverting them, of turning them around, of showing us how they were impossible, but you see in him also a kind of mourning for this impossibility of morality. He was a thinker despite everything deeply concerned with morality, you know, and deeply concerned with the death of God. Um, I mean, his relationship to God, to morality, to moral categories is a bit like what we'll see later on in this course, Foucault's relationship is to the lost subject. Um, a kind of mourning for what must necessarily be lost, and a sense that the consequences have to be interpreted as radically as possible if any compensation is to be made for the loss. Um, Once Nietzsche declares God's dead, that was a moment. Um, Once it was said it could not be taken back. It's like the French Revolution for Hegel. The storming of the Bastille was irreversible. Once Nietzsche says God is dead, there is no way to go back. There is no way to take that back. We are all then living in a world in which we have to grapple with the fact of God's death Um, And when we have to grapple with the potential implication, which Nietzsche will then come along and say basically around that same time, the early 1880s, okay, if God is dead, then everything is permitted. Okay, Wednesday we'll talk about Berkson. Original recording and editing by Guy Ordoliva. Podcast production by Ryan McAvoy.